Live from the Talking Joe Studios, it's Talking Joe. G.I. Joe, the very best, America's elite. Eliter than all the rest, trained to have no flaws. Defending liberty across the land, valor oversized. Bring out that big brass band, real heroes verified. Gotta read them all, you must agree. Elitist in history, or there could be no end in a world we must defend. A courageous crew, their colors red, whites, and blue. Mess with them and they'll shoot you. Gotta read them all, gotta read them all. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark. Welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest running dedicated G.I. Joe comics podcast. Now, if you are new to the show, you can find out all of the details over at the website talkingjoe.co.uk. If you've not yet subscribed to the YouTube channel, do that. If you've not yet joined our Facebook group, do that too. Um, Now, today we are continuing our look at the disavowed era of G.I. Joe with G.I. Joe America's Elite Issues one through four. This was from Devil's Due, July 2005 through to October 2005. It is the first arc of the Joe Casey run following issue zero that we covered last time. Now, for those reading along, you can read this in the normal floppies that you can find all over the place. Check out eBay. You'll find good lots there. Uh, Or in the trade paperback editions you can find these issues in the 2006 devil's due trade paperback which is called america's elite trade paperback one which uh it's called the newest war it covers issues zero to five and there is also a later reprint trade paperback from idw i think it was in 2013 that is called america's elite volume one uh, now, without further ado, let me introduce my co-host. He's so elite, I'm surprised he's even talking to me. It's a real American Tim. It's Tim Finn. Hello, listeners, and hello, Mark. And please remember, elite always has an exclamation mark after it. <laughs> it does, <laughs> except when you except on online. It's mostly only in the logo. All right. So the the Devil's Due collection of of America's Elite does have the exclamation mark on it and it reuses a version of the covered issue number one uh the idw disavowed collection does not have an exclamation mark on the cover the exclamation mark was disavowed as well <laughs> how unfortunate <laughs> i guess I'm, I'm jumping ahead to the let's take a look at the covers yeah, so uh, so t- last time we covered issue zero in a huge amount of detail. Today we are covering four issues. That does mean, Tim, that we have to cover the same amount of content in uh, great in lesser than or equal time. Uh, we are not going to do two hours per issue. I'll be good, and um, I have I have fewer notes, and, <laughs> and I I won't I won't repeat stuff from from issue zero. Uh, good things or bad things. 
Yeah, and you've listened back because you did the video editing on the on the last one. So yes, that's I'm, exciting. I'm pretty familiar with. Uh, uh, yeah, so we uh, there was a time where we had uh, YouTube video versions of our disavowed episodes, and I thought our issue zero talk was so good, and I had a little spare time. I thought I would do that video, and I haven't done any of our. Uh, YouTube videos. That's that's always been Mark or Jay Cordray. Hi, Jay. And I thought I should do one. And boy, was that a lot of work. <laughs> so kudos to Mark and to Jay for editing all those videos, the versions that are just the audio with a still or the versions that have a lot of pictures when we're talking about specific things. Mm. And uh, we also had a brand new uh, jingle for the brand's new America's Elite read-through, um, and she got to experience that in all of its glory as well. Um, so the people bringing us these issues that we'll be talking about today were Joe Casey, the writer, pencils by Stefano Caselli, inks by Andrew Pepoy, colours by Sunda Raj with Carsten Bradley and Kendrick Lim of Imaginary Friends Studio for issues three and four. Lettering Steve Seeley and edited by Mark Powers. Associate editor is Mike O'Sullivan. Can I jump in there with a small additional fact? Um, Caselli does all of the art for issues three and four. Oh, right. So no inks by Pepoy, do you mean? Well, he's so in issue three, he's credited with pencils and inks and in issue four he's credited with artist uh, huh. and there are definitely pages in this run which look like they are pencils only oh right so possibly yeah darkened pencils in places perhaps yeah which hmm. which you either do because you've run out of time or as a stylistic choice let's have a look at the covers in the gallery so uh let's look at the covers we've also got a few alternate covers um maybe let's talk about some of the alternate covers first sure why don't why don't why don't you talk about the alternate covers and i'll talk about the main ones how about that so on issue one we've got the 2005 gi joe collectors club convention exclusive cover which is an image of Scarlet cowering behind a shadow. Uh, so this is on her solo mission. Uh, and this is by uh, Caselli and Raj, I believe. Uh, there's a 2005 convention exclusive cover by Caselli, which is Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow. There's a Buy Me toys exclusive cover snake eyes by casey hailing which is i think the least exciting of the lot can i can There's... i jump in on this one mm. um this one is uh uh snake eyes with his uzi and his sword in front of from waist up in front of a brick wall and uh the painting quality it looks like there's a lot of airbrush and the painting feels like a painting from the 80s or 90s it feels like a Marvel magazine painted cover. And and it feels because Snake Eyes' costume seems a little um, 
uh, invented sort of so the the piping on it is is unusual and the rendering on it is so different it sort of looks like he's wearing very tight sort of silken leather it feels um the word isn't retro but it feels sort of out of time it doesn't feel like a comic from from 2005 yeah it's got that kind of sheen to it that um someone like greg horn sort of adds a lot but some of the anatomy feels a little bit wonky you can see a lot of his veins through that leather whatever it is that he's wearing uh i'm not especially a fan the an exciting cover for me is the Graham Crackers Comics exclusive cover, which was released also with a foil cover, which is a Captain America number one uh, homage cover by Nelson Blake and Reese York. It's, uh, yeah, kind of a nice nostalgic throwback kind of cover. It's um, where um, Captain America was punching Hitler. Before we entered the war. Before exactly, very bold of its of its time back in uh, 1941 uh, from Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, um, and 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 if I can add a detail here, the the color on the GI Joe homage cover is meant to evoke old comics printing because the colors are all flat and they're all desaturated, right? And if if you wonder what I mean by desaturated compare the red in the gi joe logo the stripe with all of the other reds which are a slightly they're basically a dark dark orange so just to finish that uh we are whereas captain america was punching hitler before we now have snake eyes punching cobra commander so it's um a lot of fun that cover uh the only other variant to call out is the second print for issue three which is just a black and white version of the main cover by stefano caselli and sundar raj this one um is a the that the point that i made uh, about um pencils and inks on characters and backgrounds as pencils only you can really see it here right 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 yeah yeah so the foreground characters are inked whereas the background has been left just in pencils Interesting. okay so uh the main covers i know you are chomping at the bit to talk about issue one this is one of the greatest gi joe covers this is one of the greatest gi joe covers uh it hasn't achieved iconic status because it doesn't get a lot of sort of reproduction you know as as posters and shirts um the way that you know some mike zek covers do from the marvel run or you know issue one but um Sundar Raj's painting of the backlit flag with the sun behind it and the highlights on the clouds and then the highlights on the Joes and they're all looking down at us and they are somewhat dark because they're all backlit except for their highlights. It, it's just so, it, it's so dramatic and quiet. The cover to Marvel G.I. Joe one is dramatic and loud. The cover to G.I. Joe, uh, Marvel G.I. Joe number two, is dramatic and quiet. And here is a dramatic and quiet cover. You have all of the attitude in how Caselli draws, you know, furrowed brows and, and frowning men and women. The camera is low, the camera's at waist height, and it's looking up at them. And they just all look 
awesome and mean. And uh, uh, there's a big yellow number one in a circle on the top left, right? What a what a great what a great cover. Um, cover to number two is in uh, not a reverse of this, but it's five of those Joes. And now we're looking down at them. And this is not an homage to the Kevin Maguire Justice League number one, also known as Justice League America or Justice League International from 1987, right? Um, this is not an homage to that, uh, but it is a similar, quote, camera angle. And here, uh, all five of the Joes are uh, holding weapons and everyone's looking in a different direction. And... Uh, they're all, you know, bad attitude and, and mean. Storm Shadow, I'm a little confused by what he's holding because of how his um, hand and whatever it is is sort of cropped by the barcode and the corner. I can't tell if he's, I think he's holding a, a sword. It just sort of looks like a motorcycle handle. Mm. Uh, what is, yeah. what's he holding, Mark? Uh, it's probably a sword, isn't it? But with the blade sort of pointed diagonally down to the left out of screen. But would, wouldn't the... wouldn't the handle have a different wrapping? It looks like he's just holding like a, like not a metal pipe, but it, it doesn't doesn't quite look like. Anyway, um, still a cool cover and remarkably desaturated. If you know, if if you squint, there's sort of the off white of the background and Roadblock's weapon and Flint's uh, beret and Flint's shirt and jacket and Storm Shadow's entire costume and his weapon. And then you have uh, just sort of a little bit of sort of all the other colors, sort of the warmth of the flesh tones and the little bits of blue and green and red uh, from costumes. The cover to issue three is, um, I think it's a better idea than it is in execution. Um, it's, it's really powerful and loud because the camera is on the ground in the sewer looking sort of both straight on at Firefly or blue yes. and gray storm shadow who is on his back being straddled by snake eyes who's holding him down with his hand and pointing a sword uh, right at his face and then so we're sort of looking straight on at Firefly and also up at snake eyes and so this ends up being um, something of a fisheye uh, perspective. You're not seeing a lot of warping in it, but sort of that's the only way you'd be able to see both uh, Firefly's head and also um, Snake Eyes. But the piping and the wrinkles, the clothing folds, and the musculature on Snake Eyes and also sort of both of them together ends up being kind of this like additional element in the cover that is uh, overdone for me. Right, like the piping down Snake Eyes's uh, mask, which then goes down his neck, which goes down his chest, which sort of matches the like bicep tricep um, piping. And then I appreciate the light source above and behind um, Snake Eyes, but and there's an attempt to sort of separate their colors. There's there's some green in Snake Eyes's dark gray, which is different than the than the blue that's in firefly's uh costume but this cover be becomes a, a little bit it's sort of a little bit too much and a little bit like uh the i don't want to say mush but this cover doesn't quite work for me um and then 
the cover to issue four is by rock poster artist R. Black. And this was a, uh, a promotion that Devil's Due did that month for, was it four of its comics? Where um, Dragonlance Chronicles, Snake Eyes Declassified, G.I. Joe America's Elite, and uh, an issue of the adaptation of Exile, one of the Drizzt, Doerden, Forgotten Realms, Dark Elf uh, stories. Uh, these four comics, um, we've covered this briefly in a previous episode, but there's a, there's a one-page ad in issue four where there's a photo of someone walking past a brick wall. And uh, on the brick wall are these posters, which have been photoshopped on, but that's okay. Comics that rock! This October, all Devil's Due comics feature covers by nationally infamous rock poster artists Rich Black, Casey Burns, Jeff Gother, and David Witt. Don't miss these covers in October. Cool art by the guys whose posters adorn America's city walls. Cool covers at your comic shop. Devil's Due brings the rock. Gnarly. Um, and yeah. uh, so this cover... You know who this looks like? This looks like the Luna Brothers. Mm -hmm. uh, issue four is Scarlet uh, kneeling, holding her crossbow and holding uh, a pair of dice in her hand, which are uh, snake eyes. And she's blowing on the dice, but looking at you. So it's not cheesecake. It's not cheeky, 50s, sexy, somewhat innocent pinup art. But it does slightly recall that. But it, if you have read uh, Image Comics by the Luna Brothers, they have this uh, specific style with um, sort of an even line weight on everything they draw. They aren't There aren't thick lines and thin lines. And forgive me if one of them writes and one of them draws. Um, I, I have not read their stuff, so I can't be more specific. And uh, there's, no uh, there's no background behind uh, Scarlet here. And it's a neat cover, but um, I found this promotion uh, covers that rock. I found it disruptive when I was reading uh, when these issues were coming out originally. And even though I wasn't reading Snake Eyes Declassified at the time, I was sort of aware of it because of this ad. And all the images are cool or at least interesting attempts. And I totally dig Devil's Do doing something different and bringing in people who don't normally do comics. And maybe some of these people had a Chicago connection and that's cool. But you know, these four issues by Casey and Caselli in this new run really wanted four covers by Caselli. And um, there's, there's also an interesting note about this cover from the interview with Sam Wells that was done for the After Action Report book on the Devil's Due run. Uh, great book. If uh, you've not yet got it, go seek it out. Uh, just Google After Action Report and you'll you'll find it. Um, and Sam Wells said that after the book was published and the comps were sent to Hasbro, we received word that the cover image was never to be reprinted anywhere ever again. Apparently, the comment from Hasbro was that the suggestiveness of the image was meant to convey something sexual, whereas we and the artist Rich Black only meant it to represent blowing dice on uh, blowing on dice for luck as anyone who's seen any film or TV show set in a casino could tell you. Wow. In this instance, I believe it was the case of the viewer's own imagination being a bit too provocative and projecting that upon our image. Um, he also notes, interestingly, that uh, having weapons on the covers was generally forbidden 
for a brief period during America's elite. Um, so they had to uh, often omit uh, weapons, uh, avoid peril involving weapons, and avoid pointing weapons to the viewer. So a lot of the covers during the America's elite run will either feature no weapons or uh, weapons sort of being used in a fairly innocuous way. Um, the cover to issue three, which I was thinking about this before I started talking about these four covers uh, where Snake Eyes is straddling Firefly in the sewer and the sword is um, not technically touching Firefly's uh, face, but it's you know just in front of his nose and Firefly's eyes are a little bit crossed as he's looking at this thing that's very close to him. And, uh, you know, comics has a, uh, infamous history of, um, sharp things, uh, near, <laughs> near, near the things that people see out of. And, um, uh, I'm, I'm struck by how intense the threat on this issue mm -hmm. number three cover is. And I sort of wondered when I was talking about it a moment ago, oh, was there an earlier sketch where the sword is even closer, you know, like it's just touching this this is a question. This is not. I have no inside information. You know, was it was there an earlier sketch where the sword was you know touching Firefly's forehead or anything like that? So let's do plot breakdown. In the aftermath of the Chicago disaster, Joe Colton sent, sets out how the new smaller elite team will operate. Some Joes go on solo missions to investigate leads. Scarlet goes on a mission to investigate a Cobra agent, Cesspool. Hawk is convinced that Cobra Commander is behind the satellite disasters and convinces Duke to go on a mysterious mission to the Amazon. And in Chicago, Snake Eyes tracks down and confronts Firefly in the middle of a gang war. It is revealed that Baroness did not die back in issue 39, but is actually now a prisoner of G.I. Joe. Storm Shadow, General Colton and Duke interrogate the captured Baroness. The investigation of the crashing satellites leads the T Joe team to the Arequibo, sorry about the pronunciation, observatory in Puerto Rico, where they discover a connection to Mars. Along with his son Alexander, Destro and Wraith are now operating out of the Cataclysm, a nuclear submarine, his new mobile seat of power. Destro is revealed to be working on behalf of Vance Wingfield. The G.I. Joe team has begun to figure out how the crashing satellites are being controlled using vibrational tractor beams to pull the satellites out of orbit, and they figure out how to fight back. Firewall joins back with the Joes on a mission with Colton, Stalker, Roblox, Shipwreck, Flint and Storm Shadow who are using radar antennae in New Mexico to prevent the next satellite attack. Destro sw sends a swarm of prototype flying robotic iron grenadiers to attack the antennae. The Joes thwart the nefarious plans and prevent Vance Wingfield from crashing another satellite. This results in Wingfield's computer con console exploding. Destro sets off a self-destruct for the remaining Iron Grenadier robots to be continued. So uh, we were very excited about issue zero, um, mm. and it's it's not a maybe it's not a fair comparison in comparing a single comic to the next four issues, but 
Let me ask a different question. Do you remember, Mark, because you read this when it came out in 2005, mm-hmm. uh, how did you feel as the series got in to the first arc? Generally, I wasn't especially enamored with it. I felt like Casey maybe didn't get the characters uh, in, in the same way that maybe some of the other writers had previously. And um, and I think that sort of is borne out somewhat in uh, my reread hmm i like these first um two issues but i i have some quibbles and then uh the third and the fourth issue i'm starting to feel you know it looks like uh caselli uh well there's some there's some pages where um he's definitely penciling only but then uh okay if an artist is really fast or wants to prove themselves you know likes how they ink themselves doesn't want other people to ink them or is sour because someone has inked them in a way they don't like if they can pull it off they should definitely ink themselves but if you know if this book is really hard to draw and it's always got scheduling problems and i'm I'm looking ahead and i know that caselli isn't going to stick around for very long man i sure wish caselli hadn't inked issues three and four and someone had so that again this is i I don't know how the timing actually works out but maybe he would have been able to do another issue or two if he had been on schedule differently another shift happens uh between issues uh three and four where the uh colorist changes yeah and so the colors for the first two issues here are Sundaraj with some help on I think it's issue two from Carsten Bradley. Thank you. And then uh, issues three and four, it's um, Kendrick Lim of Imaginary Friends Studios. And uh, I don't like his coloring as much. Uh, it's pretty pasty. There's a lot of white. He's he's rendering with a lot of white, and um, it just sort of looks um, well, uh, sort of pasty or uh, chalky. It's less uh, it's less fun, and that coupled with the fact that I don't like the story as much in issues three and four, this arc uh, sort of f- uh, falters for me, mm. and. And my, you know, sometimes we start at the beginning. Sometimes we start with something nice. I'll start with something nice. It's, even if Caselli's drawing stuff that I'm not as interested in, even if his his art isn't as fully rendered and lush as it was in issue zero with all those gorgeous colors, I still like the art in issue mm. three and four. Uh, some of the storytelling, there's some moments here and there that I have questions about. But sort of the main thing that happens, I'll just jump to the end. Uh, the main thing... <laughs> um, the main thing that happens, this is my final note on my notes uh, for issue number four. I wrote, this storyline doesn't satisfy with radar dishes and iron grenadiers. You know, smaller team, friction with Storm Shadow, uh, friction with uh, Joe Colton. Uh, I feel like twice an issue here, Joe Colton tells someone that's an order because someone doesn't trust Storm Shadow or someone doesn't trust Colton. <laughs> I'm joking here. I think he actually only says it once an issue, but Colton says several times in this arc, that's an order. Uh, and it, it's a little overdone. Mm. 
So, and I, and I don't remember how I felt when I read these issues because I did come back for issue zero of America's Elite, and this this reset at Devil's Due did pull me back in. I was very excited because I liked the writer, I liked the artist, uh, I liked a reset that didn't rely on knowing what had happened in the previous series. And, um, uh, and, you know, and I stuck around as long as Caselli did. Mm. Okay. So, um, the first issue, uh, here's a little storytelling thing. So issue one, page three, uh, the Joes are all around a table and they're talking and there's really dramatic lighting cause they're lit both from the windows and also from the table, which is cool. So they've got all this underlighting on them. And, um, you know, Caselli has got his really dramatic sort of acting, overacting. I mean, that as a compliment, you know, how people are tilted and twisting their spines and using their hands and looking at each other and everyone's got attitude. And um, on page three, Flint is holding something. Colton's just said, there's still leads worth following up on. And Flint says, does that mean... We can win this time. I mean, the obvious solution is to simply eradicate every Cobra connection we can find. He's holding something, sort of a dark, baggy black thing with a little stubby, looks like a shotgun round. Looks like a, looks like the the candy part of a push pop. Push a push pop. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Push a push pop. Flint pushes it for flavor. Flint pushes a push pop. Flint saves it for later. And and I I don't know what that object is. And in the top panel on this page, he's not holding anything. So I guess it's in his hand, but we can't see it. Or it's in his pocket, and he hasn't pulled it out yet. And this is a small thing. It's not a deal breaker. Um, but I thought, what is that? And I assume it's an explosive with a an arming device or you know a, a detonation button. <laughs> and then we don't see it again in this scene. We don't see Flint on the following page. And then on the next page, uh, he's kind of small in two panels. And I guess he put it back in his pocket. And, you know, it's like, what? where's the mis- where's the miscommunication? Either Casey is calling something out in his script and Caselli draws it, but the script and the art don't follow up on it. And I don't need someone in dialogue to say, Flint, what are you going to do with that explosive? And I think the idea is that Flint wants to eradicate, as to use the word he uses in this panel, to eradicate Cobra with something deadly like this, you know, plastic explosive or whatever it is. So either it's in the script and Caselli draws it and they don't know what to do with it, or it's not in the script and Caselli adds it and an editor didn't say, oh, we should explain that. Or, oh, Caselli, can you take that out or something? Uh, But then here's something sort of, you know, interesting on page five shipwreck has a line of dialogue which sort of resets the josh blaylock notion that gi joe is now publicly known because remember in the previous run flint is a published author yeah the, the previous run sort of does what the the tv cartoon does where people sort of know who gi joe is you know like remember in the second miniseries when um roadblock meets uh what's her name i forget uh she she got the cowboy hat Mm -hmm. um and and 
and he says, uh, and they're they're hiding in the back of a Cobra truck filled with food. And he says, I'm I'm with GI Joe. I'm a, a gourmet chef, and we're gonna get out of here. And she says, GI Joe, and she knows what it is. You know, it's like how top secret is. You know, so we know what the Green Berets are, even if we don't know anything about them. We know what Delta Force is, even if we don't know anything about them. Anyway, so Shipwreck has this line here. Uh, welcome to the new order. We save the world and no one ever knows. And Stalker says, as it should be, there's a freedom in being invisible. I wouldn't necessarily equate that with being expendable. And and that line, so Shipwreck's line sort of changes Blaylock's uh, status quo. And Stalker's response to me slightly recalls Larry Hama's line in Marvel G.I. Joe number yeah. one that Flint sa- uh, Hawk says, uh, which is... Um, uh, our job is to do the impossible and be forgotten. And this line has was changed before it was published as our job is to do the impossible and to make it look easy, right? The editor changed that and Hama uh, didn't like that. Uh, and later Hama, in, in a much later issue, I can't remember if it was Marvel or IDW, uh, Hama got to do it the way he wanted. And and then that that sort of is, is echoed and it sort of uh, follows up on a point that you made last time, which is, that Joe Col- Colton is talking about all of the people flying down to uh, Ground Zero. Yes, uh, yeah. He says uh, Ch- Chicago Ground Zero, not not New York Ground Zero. Yeah, I'm gonna, not going to waste time repeating protocol to those of you who felt the need to fly down to Ground Zero yesterday. This is the Chicago disaster. I admire your intentions, but our operation is strictly covert. We've already confiscated twelve cameras at the scene yesterday, just in case. Rescue crews are doing their job. Now it's time for us to do ours. And yet last time you said, well, hold on. G.I. Joe's job isn't really down, you know, to, to go and fly down to uh, to disasters and, you know, help people out the, the wreckage and, you know, what they're doing, etc. Uh, and yeah, I think Colton is on the same page. And uh, so he's sort of chewing them out over it a little bit. Um, Whoa, the Baroness is live. <laughs> she is. Did you know? We, did you remember? I when, did remember. When, and okay. I knew that she was on front covers and things, uh, which helps my, remem- my oh, memory. Oh, right. Okay. So, so when when she dies, quote, finger quotes dies, uh, at the end of the Brandon Jurawal run, even though I had seen America's Elite covers when just looking at, you know, websites in the last year or 20, uh, I really did think she was dead. And I think when we covered that issue, I said, oh, man, Brandon Drewa sure is taking a character out. And you said, well, <laughs> probably. Yeah, he didn't fool me. <laughs> um, I, I think I think her I think Casey's take on her is good that mm-hmm. she's she's not going to help them. And um, and we had we had an old section um, back in the day called Ninja Bullshits. Ninja Bullshit, it's all the time, P.I. Joe and Ninja Bullshit. And that's where ninjas can do sort of basically magic things. And uh, Baroness calls him out on it. She's, she refers to his ninja mind tricks as he's trying to extract information mm. uh, from uh, from her. And um, the the result of that interrogation that they they had and then him going back up and sort of looking something on the computer just seems completely tenuous to me i didn't it didn't feel like they'd actually got any information out from her at all did i miss something do you doesn't, think but doesn't storm shadow say i sort of got something 
I didn't I didn't write this down. So um, doesn't he? He in hints the, that he the, got got in something the second from... in the second issue, and he says it in front of someone who wasn't in that top secret bunker. Yeah, and they were like downstairs. Yeah, as they get back to the computer. Uh, yeah. Oh, downstairs? What the hell is he talking about, sir? Says Stalker in issue two. Um, yeah, Storm Shadow says, well, I can't find it, but, um, <laughs> uh, well, he, and then here's something. Okay, so you you find that that scene doesn't narratively accomplish much. Um, when Scarlet goes to investigate um, cesspool and meets cesspool's wife or partner yeah um and there are these these three children who are actually creepy robot children things yeah i don't know what that scene is for it Um, was it was weird i i thought the scene so they say they say sort of like we can work together and you know you can also go out and do your solo missions try and gather intel so she's she's got um She's she's got some intel, and it's hinted that it's um, been planted by Destro, and so she's followed up on this intel, and it's taken her to cesspool, where she's sort of been a little bit taken by surprise by uh, his wife, and then the creepy blue ninja robot children, <laughs> and uh, uh, and it, to me and the, that's and the, the scene most, ends. And the scene ends, and then and we, we don't see we, any more of it. In, yeah, we in don't these cu- four issues. Yeah. So okay. So so Scarlet sees Cesspool, who's um, bedridden and sick, and yeah. then Cesspool's wife pops out with a gun, and they fight, and that's a cool two pages, three pages, and then Scarlet knocks her out, and the camera's low, and there are three silhouettes behind scarlet and one of them says you don't play nice we don't like you you hurt mommy and scarlet says are these people really your parents kids and then the three robot the three children tear their faces off and have glowing (laughs) robot eyes and they say you don't play nice we don't like you you hurt mommy and then they have they've like fully torn off their heads and their hair and they just look like uh sort of those uh sort of those later cobra bats from the is it like the andrew wildman issues the marvel run like around 130 or is it were there some bats um when star brigade goes to space phil gozier was drawing it um these just don't look like any cobra action figures that we've seen and and this is okay if if a former cobra agent who is terminally ill is married and retired in the suburbs and has built robot children. That is fascinating. And you can do something with that. I think either the point is um, this person is crazy, but is trying to find some meaning in their life after sort of G.I. Joe versus Cobra, or the robots are one more action cue for, in this case, Scarlet to have a cool fight or just to demonstrate even more how weird and damaged, in this case, Cesspool is, or how weird and crazy his wife is, who, if Cesspool couldn't have built these children because he's bedridden, then it sort of feels like the wife is going to show up again 
They're going to get intel out of her. She's going to put on a costume and be a new Cobra villain or a new third party villain. Um, sort of this page with the kids, um, it's drawn nicely, but sort of narratively and in terms of momentum, like nothing about it works. It's it's weird and confusing and it doesn't go anywhere. And and I can't help but wonder, you know, if this was if this was Larry Hama, I would say, okay, Hama makes it up as he goes along. Maybe one day <laughs> these characters are gonna come back and we'll get an explanation that maybe Hama makes up later. And maybe we'd find that explanation satisfying. And maybe Hama has an idea about what he might do with it later if he gets around to it later. And maybe he never gets around to it and some of us are disappointed and some of us forget. Knowing that Casey is going to do it's 18 issues, right? It's three it's three arcs. Yep. I really hope that this, this really interesting concept comes back, but it doesn't come back in this first arc. So I'm not, you know, game over, points off, but it's weird. Like it, yeah. the scene, the scene really wants one more page. So I can't help but wonder if Casey has this idea and an editor, or I don't think someone at Hasbro, but you know, someone says, "Oh no, cut that shorter." Oh no, no, don't don't do more of that. You can get to it later. Yeah, I think I'm on the sort of pretty much the same place as as you are, which is that for me, this this Scarlet sort of subplot is the probably the most interesting part of the arc, and it's so short and it gets cut short so quickly and then we don't see any more of it this is so this happens in issue one and then we don't see any more of it through to issue four so it's one of the sort of frustrations for for me about this this first arc there is a there is a little hint in issue three so I, i mentioned that that destro has planted some sort of seed which has led to scarlet investigating uh cesspool and that's that's you know what how she's ended uh ended up where she does i'm just gonna see yeah he he says uh, when he finds out about um gi joe investigating uh retired operatives protected individuals he says interesting there's an opportunity here let's feed some of our own intel into the data stream perhaps something will come out of it we can use it to our advantage so, so that's I think what led uh, Scarlet to this investigation, and then there's this little sort of side comment in issue three, which is very easy to overlook, which is back on the sub. Destro says, "Status." An Iron Grenadier in front of a screen says, "Sir, transport sub has detached. Prisoner on route to Cell Bay Delta." Very well. Insurance is a vital component of any successful industry. So very easy to skip by, but I think let's revisit that little seed when we get to future issues. Destro has a prisoner. (laughs) Scarlet has gone missing. Uh, Let's see if that connects. Okay, so um, one of my my comments, one of my overall comments for this run, these four issues, is that I don't think case, I don't think the team of Casey and Caselli, or I think, I don't think in the writing of, Casey, he has he has excellent final pages or final panels. Either I want a really cool cliffhanger, or I want something that's just emotionally satisfying and moves us forward or puts a button on something. And 
the final page of issue one, and then I'm going to jump to issue two. That's 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 a that's a, a powerful image, right? We have this. I, I think Sundar Raj sort of did all the work here. Um, there's this painting of this city. Uh, is it Los Angeles? I forget. It, it, it is Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley. Thank you. And there's this orange streak coming down through the clouds of another satellite crashing. And there's a sort of vignetted inset uh, overlay of Stalker sort of seeing it uh, saying, not again. And I'm not that concerned about another satellite hitting an American city because Issue Zero did that. And I don't mean to be callous that that kind of a disaster... If it happened a second time, that's no big deal. But the stakes of it happening a second time are equal to, but not greater than the first. So when I got to this final page, I I felt let down because it's like, well, the Joes haven't figured it out in issue zero, and they're still looking. And I guess people are still in Chicago trying to, you know, rescue people and put out fires and dig out um, rubble. And... (laughs) This isn't sort of the proper solution, but okay, if in issue zero, the stakes are one satellite takes out one city, then you sort of escalate it by twice as much or 10 times as much, you know, it's like, no, no, no. If this was a movie, sort of the big disaster at the beginning is like one satellite. And then the end of act two is all of the satellites falling, you know? And so when I got to the end of issue one, I thought, Okay, I'll keep reading. I mean, this reading. I don't mean 2005. I'll keep reading because Mark and I are doing this podcast and I like these comics. But um, that wasn't actually enough on its own to keep me reading if I you know, wasn't a crazy G.I. Joe fan and doing a G.I. Joe podcast. And then it happens again uh, at the end of issue two, where my note is, uh, not a good final panel. Where is this? So there's a subplot in issue two where Duke goes off on his own and uses some, some I guess because he's, he's a CIA spook from uh, between the Marvel run and the beginning of all of the Devil's Do run. Uh, so Duke's going to go investigate something and he's in a plane and he is ready to jump out in a parachute. And there's a quick flashback to how he got there because he shows a badge and and uses his special pull and yeah, gets to use cerebro to find the information uh yes yeah, uh duke on on the top panel of the final page of issue two of america's elite um does uh professor charles xavier cosplay <laughs> um and you you can't you don't see the, the sort of the spherical cerebro from the live action x-men movies you don't see that round grid behind him but you can you can pretend and this final panel, this two-thirds page splash of Duke skydiving somewhere over, you know, green. It's like, I don't know. Is it South America? Is it Africa? Is it Asia? Is it Florida? Right? Um, and I couldn't help but feel like these two pages where Duke is on this mission, if they had been same art but different word balloons and captions if someone else had done a second pass on this this would have been more interesting and satisfying and at minimum i'd like to know where he's going because 
if it's someplace that has a G.I. Joe connection, you know, like the Everglades, like, oh, the uh, Dreadnoughts or, uh, you know, like Sierra Gordo or it doesn't look like Barovia, but I don't know, maybe Barovia has forests. And then, yeah, and then we don't find out again until the final page of issue four. Um, right. And, you know, it's 2005 and Marvel in the previous, uh, like starting just four years ago, Marvel has created a a graphic novel reprint program. You know, DC had, since the late 80s, turned miniseries and arcs into graphic novels and in the 90s uh, did it not comprehensively, but it got to be comprehensive. You know, there were a couple famous stories like Watchmen and V for Vendetta. And then there's some Batman, you know, specials like Dark Knight Returns and Killing Joke, and then some important arcs. And then all um, 10 Sandman books, right? Like DC gets into this and Marvel doesn't actually have a proper backlist program until Bill Jemis and Joe Casada take over in 2000, 2001. And this is when writers are being encouraged implicitly or explicitly at various publishers or by particular editors to, quote, write for the trade. So don't try and pack in a bunch into one issue or don't necessarily try and tell a beginning, middle and end in any one issue. Write a four or five or six issue story and maybe the first two issues are the beginning and then the next two issues are the middle and then you know parts five and six or six are the end because it's really about the graphic novel collection and so maybe joe casey's thinking more like that and you know hama just makes hama's writing this gi joe thing 20 or 22 pages at a time for (laughs) 40 years you know with a 10-year break in the middle Okay, as a as a counterpoint to um, the the prop at the beginning of issue one, the explosive in Flint's hand that I I don't understand and we don't see again. As a <laughs> counter, I'll just I'll just put in, insert my my thought here, which is I think it's a curled up beret and shotgun shell. But again, very very on, oh. on the same page. Not not exactly clear oh. what, what it's all about. But. Oh, that's great because. The brace, his costume, is the iconic part of his costume, and his version one costume, his Tiger Force reprint, he's got bandoliers with shotgun shells for his sawed-off shotgun. But Flint's Devil's Do America's lead costume doesn't have shotgun shells on it. He's just got Stefano Caselli piping. Um, okay, uh, that was good. Thank you. In issue two, there is a... Uh, on page 12... Well, around page 12, there's basically a flashback to around Marvel issue number four. And that was exciting to me. Because Casey is saying that, you know, the Marvel continuity does connect and does matter. And uh, I think we all like Marvel issue four, Operation Wingfield. And... Uh, I, I just appreciate it. Okay, so um, and I spy, I I spy on this one. Um, uh, Wingfield is wearing a first strike cap with the same logo from issue four. Yes, and and whereas uh, at the end of issue zero, I really wanted Wingfield to have his mustache and or his glasses and or his hat as a visual cue. I mean, I, you know, when I'm 
70 and an an evil genius in a wheelchair, I will not look like I did in my 20s or 30s. Uh, and I won't wear the same clothes and I'll have a different hairstyle. But this is comics. Uh, you know, if we're going to see the Baroness, I need to see her glasses and her hair. That's that was, that was the Baroness cues. Um, so I do appreciate here that we're not just seeing a flashback to issue four, but we're seeing Wingfield the way that he had been established. Although um, they do tone, tone down his uh, moustache to make it less cartoony and twirly. <laughs> um, that's okay. That to me, I sort of file that under, you know, if they did a flashback, they're going to color it like modern comics in 2005. Mm-hmm. They're not going to color it like a Marvel book in 82. Um, but in this black and white flashback, we see the hat. And then in all of the red orange tones in the present day in Wingfield's uh, control center with the map, we see the hat. Yeah. And so as a counterpoint to Caselli losing the thread of whatever Flint was holding uh, here is a prop which is established and reestablished and gives added meaning and context. There's a little, there's a little sort of satisfying emotional, huh? Yeah, he, it's that guy. This guy is that guy because uh, I don't know how it reads in the in the in the collection in the trade paperback, but uh, these two pages face each other: the hat in the flashback and then the hat uh, in the present day. It is pages. Uh, 17 through 21 in issue two, which appear to me as pencils only. And um, if you're wondering sort of where I see that, uh, I think I see it everywhere, but I really see it in Flint's hair where I'm seeing like pencil lines, not, not ink lines, but also there's a, there's a subtle roughness to uh, sort of all of the lines uh, and this is okay. I'm not, you know, I'd, I would prefer it be inked because it looks consistent. It's a little smoother. Page 18, someone mentions Blaine Parker as if I'm supposed to know who that is. And I thought, who's Blaine Parker? So uh, now that I've Googled it uh, and I feel silly for not remembering because I am a crazy G.I. Joe fan. Mark, tell us, who's Blaine Parker? <laughs> is this issue two? Two. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So there's, it's a page with a bunch of a radar on the top and they're huddled over a computer uh so tell us all uh tell us all including me embarrassed who's blaine parker (laughs) i so so i flicked to the page i didn't i didn't notice that in the dialogue before so there it's uh mm, i think it's stalker talking this could be a self-corrupting file here's something blaine parker taught me let's try and help it along confuse the scuttle program and uh, I didn't pick up on that name, Blaine Parker. And it isn't something that immediately comes to mind. My guess would be, could it be Mainframe's real file name? It is. So uh, so my question for you, Mark, is, because <laughs> everything Joe Casey is doing here, we're judging, Right. Would Blaylock have done this? Would Dan Jolly have done this? Would Jurwa have done this? How would Hama have handled it? You know, Casey's <laughs> well, only got Hammer eight. Wouldn't, Hammer, Hammer wouldn't have done it. Hammer do, very rarely uses um, uh, real real names in the, um, in the comic. So so it's definitely not Hammer. But I think Blaine Parker is too big a deep cut. Mm, okay. For the most part, the Joes call each other by their um, code names. And mainframe is is not a list enough for for I think a typical Joe Joe fan. 
for it to be reasonable for them to go, oh yeah, Blaine Parker, of course, that's mainframe. Right. You know, may, maybe Conrad Hauser, Duke, maybe, you know. Hector X Delgado, because that's said aloud in an episode of the show. <laughs> maybe, I will, I will maybe never Hawks forget file that name. Maybe even Roadblocks, but I think anything below that top tier, I think it's unfair. Roadblocks, uh, Roadblocks name is also said aloud in an episode, just his first name, uh, Red Rockets Glare, because his aunt and uncle own a fast food restaurant that Extensive Enterprises is taking over. That is such a good episode, everyone. Um, uh, so those are my, uh, so I'm, I'm, those are my comments for issue two. So I was going to hop to issue three. Do you want to, you want to take the mic and say something? For me, the key point for for issue three is is probably that it's a it, for the most part of this issue, it's a kind of sidestep away from the A plots. Okay, sort of the A plot with with the satellite and all the Joe shenanigans is kind of the bookend for the beginning and the end of the book. But then this middle section is this big fights, this big action sequence with uh, with Snake Eyes versus uh, Firefly. So it's it's kind of somewhat stand alone and it was another another part of a slight sense of frustration for me is that it wasn't obvious kind of what this other than it being a cool action sequence what what this what this particular story point was doing for the main part of the story it seemed very sort of standalone self-contained and not progressing the rest of the the story okay um i'm gonna get very specific here so on page eight in the sewer, uh, Firefly is attacking this criminal, and he takes out his uh, his guard or his sort of co co criminal, his, his underling. Snake Eyes shows up. So uh, page eight, there's a half page splash of Snake Eyes and Firefly and the criminal, and Snake Eyes and Firefly's costumes are too similar. And this is my critique. Uh, I really like Caselli's art. Uh, I like his costume design. I think the Joes and the Cobras look cool in the series. But there's this thing where everyone has the same piping on their costume. So Snake Eyes has it uh, from his sort of his his back neck over his head, down his face, under his jaw, down his neck, down his chest. Right? He has he has a pipe sort of on his left, uh, down his his torso, even down to his his legs. And he has this right piping. And if you look at Firefly, Firefly has sort of a um, piece of armor over his chest. He has the same piping. And yeah, it's a little different on his on his face mask. But are Joes and Cobras going to the same, you know, uniform store or costume designer? I mean, technically are. It's Stefano Caselli. (laughs) But um you know, in the, I mean, in, in 82, the Joes can wear g- green cloth and the Cobras can wear Cobra uh, blue cloth. And that's fine. That's not, you know, confusing. And, you know, the Joes have um, those collars and like cuffs. And that's a little different from how the Cobras have. But, th- and this is something that jumped out at me in 2005 when I read this, because I would see like Storm Shadow, who's a Joe, and Snake Eyes, who's a Joe, and Firefly, and Destro, and Destro's son, Destro, and they all have, and Flint, they all have this like left vertical piping down their uh, torso and legs, and this right vertical piping. And 
I don't know that everyone should have it on one team, and certainly not everyone should have it on both teams. It's 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 a little weird because <laughs> it doesn't make sense. If if there was some story thing, if for Destro, you know, it's like, aha, I sell weapons to both sides and make wars go on longer. My subsidiary, Mars Fashion, is supplying the Joes while that idiot Cobra Commander, you know, it's like, and I'm making money on both sides. I mean, that would be too much, but at least that would <laughs> um, that would explain it. But um, yeah, let's talking about uh, GI Joe fashion. Let's uh, let's dig into it a bit. Armani, Prada, Versace too. Joe's changed their outfits from black to blue. Duke and Hawk, look but don't gawk. Changing their kit. Whoa, was that legit? Swapping camo jackets, headgear and boots. It's now neon colours and funky space suits. Sci-fi stalker and even Roblox. While Bill, Flint and Muck gave me a shot. So go take a walk if clothes aren't your passion. Because it's comic book talk and lovely G.I. Joe fashion. Firefly redesign. So piping aside, what do you do? You think I, I, I quite, I quite like this look. I think it works well because you've you've had have kind of have the classic camo, you know, grey camo Firefly version one, which uh, was sort of formed the basis for Firefly's previous look as he appeared in the Devil's Due continuity. Uh, sort of just in a bit of an updated version of of that, and then. You had the Firefly version two, which was the kind of the Ninja Force neon green gray mask combination, and and what we've got here in this look is sort of bringing those two things together. It's kind of that saboteur look combined with a sort of more subdued version of that that green outfit. So I, I find it quite interesting this this sort of reinvention uh, that they've got for Firefly here. Um. It's okay. <laughs> if you look on page 13, panel two, Firefly's um, taking a gun from a bad guy and also shoving his hand into the bad guy's face and he's saying amateurs. And he's got a um, piece of armor on his shoulder uh, bicep. And then he's got a piece of like a, he's got a gauntlet, like a, like a bracer on his forearm. And it looks sort of like it's a piece on another piece. So like a little bit overdone i also miss the actual camo and one of the reasons why these two costumes snake eyes and firefly look too similar it's not just the piping although that's a big part of it it's that if you compare their version one figures you have this guy in all black with this guy who's two different grays and if you compare Snake Eyes version two with Firefly version one, you have this guy who's all black or black and dark gray with this guy who's two different grays. And the fact that um, Snake Eyes doesn't have any pattern on him and Firefly does makes them immediately different. And as soon as you make them both sort of a middle and dark gray, and they each sort of have like gear on them, like, gauntlets and bracers and shoulder not quite pads even though one of them has a mask and one of them has his eyes are visible even though one of them is sort of grayish and bluish and one is sort of blackish and maybe a little something else ish they they look too similar and so this fight in issue three um it's a cool fight but i don't know think of like you know batman fighting the joker if if there's an arm or a boot, you know whose it is. You know, think of Wolverine fighting Sabretooth. There are some similarities in their costumes, but 
there are also some big differences. One's blonde, one's uh, black-haired, you know, particularly if you have the yellow and blue Wolverine fighting uh, Sabretooth. But, you know, this starts to be like Jamie Madrox fighting uh, Jamie Madrox. <laughs> you know, it's like, well... That's the multiple that, man for X-Men. Yeah, yes. uh, that, that's, yes, that's an X-Factor character. That's an X-Men character from Marvel. Yeah, and don't don't get me wrong. I think Firefly version one is the by far the best design and can't be beat. It's just a sort of a thought of a, a way of reconciling those two different sort of elements that have been established: the uh, the saboteur and the the ninja. I would take twenty percent of the detail and gear out of this Firefly redesign, and I would put camo back into it. And it could even be camo. I guess there's a tiny bit on the cover on his face it could even just be on the cloth that's under the armor but i want i want a more sort of bold difference and you know something like snake eyes having three grenades diagonally across his chest that's that kind of thing you know that's an immediate difference yeah interesting that that camo does sort of carry across onto the gray bits of um firefly's outfit in most panels but sometimes gets a little bit lost and, and just because i guess it's so busy it, sometimes you're thinking is that shading is that camo Hard to i tell, i don't think i see it oh okay it's really subtle mm. hmm. it's um, yeah more subtle in, in certain panels than than others snake eyes also is his his little tweak or redesign that that sort of jumps out uh here is that his his mask, his sort of visor um, thing, has got like an indentation um, in it, so that it's sort of almost making, um, almost making a very flat H. So it's got like a little dip in the top and. The oh, bottom. you you mean it's sort of the way that um, it goes from being a, a a uniform visor to like sort of like sunglasses. Yeah, almost like sunglasses. Yeah, there's, there's almost... a pinch. There's a pinch where the nose is on the top and bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and yet there are still two grooves in it to re- recall the actual visor of his version two costume. Um, I think I think Snake Eyes looks great. Um, I want I want something on his upper torso. I want one grenade on the left to recall version one, or I want three grenades diagonally across. To recall version two, or I want one or two little knives across his chest to recall version three. I like this this snake eyes. It's missing one thing. Yeah, those iconic elements have just been replaced by sort of piping and busy work. And here's here's sort of a comparison. Um, I think because of merchandise and movies and TV shows in the last um, five or ten years. Uh, DC Comics and Warner Brothers have realized that Cyborg is an important character. He's on three different shows. He's in three different teams. <laughs> he's had his own solo series. He's got a new one right now for Dawn of DC. And only recently did they give him a symbol. You know, right. Superman has a symbol on his chest. Batman has a symbol on his chest. I don't want the Joker to have a symbol. That would be silly. <laughs> um, and, you know, Cyborg, when he was in... Uh, Teen Titans for all those, you know, decades or Titans. He he didn't have anything particular. And then I think it was when uh, Warner Brothers announced their slate of Zack Snyder universe movies like 10 years ago. And there was going to be a cyborg movie after Justice League and after Justice League Part 2. 
and I, I think maybe then that's when Cyborg got a sort of a glowing red C or like a, a, a C with a red dot in the middle or something. And now that's on his chest in the comics. And Snake Eyes needs not a letter, not a not like a Snake Eyes face, but something. Um, and then you you briefly touched on the the Joe's sort of updated costumes as as well that they've they across most of the team now they've kind of got this red white and blue motif where there's sort of that their right arm is got sort of red uh, their sort of chest has got sort of a white streak and their left arm has got kind of a blue streak um, so that they for, for most of the characters. That's a sort of like a kind of unifying element of the the red, white, and blue. Yeah, um, listeners, if you want a good uh, sense of this, open issue one and look at pages two and three, because you see Duke and Flint and Shipwreck and Roadblock all, and, and Flint all sort of, they've got their versions of this. Um, I think it's okay. I think it never quite takes off because... Uh, it's not like there's a scene where they're all lined up saluting and I can sort of take it all in and compare it. And immediately there are ones with differences. Storm Shadow's not going to have this. Scarlet has her sort of um, sort of yellow mustardish and sort of reddish chest and shoulder stuff going on. So I I like the I like the idea. And did did you use this term in our in our issue zero episode or? Did we say it somewhere else where it's the costume? It's it's not it's not like a military shirt that you like put on and button up. It's but it's not a superhero costume. It's a little bit both. It feels sort of it feels sort of like it's like Under Armour. Yeah, yeah. It's it's athletic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like an ath- yeah athletic, but it's it's thick, stretchy, thick gear. Yeah, it's not like a thin running shirt that wicks away sweat. It's a I mean, Caselli draws it as kind of thick. I mean, it ought to be thick to to take all that piping. <laughs> um, I don't like it on Destro. Uh, Destro, for me, does not work here. He needs a collar, some version of a collar or a cape. Destro here looks... At um, the same shop again. Yeah, he's got Destro the same fashion. two uh, vertical pipes. Destro here looks... Uh, this sounds like a pun, and I don't mean it to. Destro here looks sort of naked, like his his costume is missing one or two things, you know. Because, you know, you think of Destro in the '80s and Doctor Mindbender and Zartan and these co- and then and the Baroness. These costumes are flamboyant. They're fun and funny. They're super villain costumes. You know, it's like. I don't know, think of Marvel villains from the 60s. You know, it's like Batrock the Leaper and Baron Von Strucker, you know, and Arnim Zola when he's got his head on a TV in his stomach. Um, And here, Destro just looks like a guy. And Destro and his son, I mean, yes, Alexander's wearing a red jumpsuit, but they, they just look the same. And I really need these two guys to be differentiated. And I really wish when alexander shows up at the very beginning of the devil's do thing uh destro the elder had his gold helmet so that i always know who's talking (laughs) yeah why didn't they do that but um they've destro senior is is shown at least in issue one with green eyes and um 
Alexander with blue eyes. Oh yeah, the way that uh, like uh, like Lex Luthor before uh, Infinite Crisis, right? Weren't we supposed to know that the Lex Luthor right. who'd been in the Jeff Loeb, Ed McGinnis, Superman, Batman team up series was actually Lex Luthor from another universe or something? Because <laughs> um, his eyes were the wrong color. Uh, I'm not enough of a DC fan to be able to answer that question, but I remember someone bringing that up. Um, and then uh, issue four. Shall we jump to issue four? Yep. Yep. You're going to do floating. You, we missed, missed your floating hologram. Oh, <laughs> yeah. What do you think of that in issue, in issue three? It's a bit silly, isn't it? Particularly it, like it's... if it just appears from nowhere and there's like no technology yeah, there yeah, that, okay, to that's produce what it. Is. it. Yes. So in and of itself, it's not too silly for G.I. Joe because G.I. Joe has a lot of high tech and futuristic and almost sci-fi stuff but uh you know uh wingfield is in his wheelchair by the fire in oregon and there are there are two word balloons that are sort of a sound effect and i think a computer voice or an operator premier zero account holder acknowledge and he says whoa what the hell and he's sort of waking up and then i think what's also throwing me off is this third panel on this in this scene where Wingfield wakes up, the first panel where you actually see the Destro head, I don't think this is the right camera angle or size for the Destro hologram to have any effect, much less the intended effect. This is supposed to be shocking and cool and a upsetting invasion of privacy. Like we would all be weirded out if a giant hologram head appeared and if this were a movie you'd have like some flickering light and like all the lamps would like go off and on for a second because the power is being drained or like the fireplace would almost go out for a second or there'd be a rumble or like the tv would buzz or like wingfield would hear a couple electrical sounds or there'd be some kind of computer or radar gear in wingfield's room that's like receiving a signal and there'd be words on the screen or like the radar dish on his roof would like turn and receive a signal. And all we get here is, are those two word balloons that I just did. And then there's this, it's, it is the size of half of my thumb on this page, this green head. And it's not like, it's not like the cover of issue one where it's bigger than us and looking down at us. And it's not like the cover of issue two where it's, looking up at us but filled with attitude we can't even see it its face we see its face two panels later and so i think caselli in terms of capturing an emotion or the emotion of this cool weird exciting upsetting reveal surprise i think caselli misses it and and the next the next page it has the head following him down a, a <laughs> corridor and it's behind him this is even you know less useful than a telephone call because he uh, can't actually see the hologram this, this sort of reminds me of um george lucas filming some of the jedi in episode one or two and uh, star wars episode one or two and yoda is sort of floating next to them as they walk down a hallway and the scene lacks drama and tension because like Yoda wasn't there on set and 
<laughs> and like they need the humans to walk at a normal speed, but Yoda can't walk at that speed. So let's give Yoda a vehicle, but let's give him sort of a weird distracting vehicle. And also like the background doesn't feel real because, you know, there's too much green screen in those movies. This reminds me a little bit of that. It's like, oh, I've got this act. I've got this actor on a practical set talking to a, a visual effect that's not there. Um, so moving to uh, <laughs> moving to issue four, um, it's the return of everyone's favorite uh, character. It's Firewall because the fans demanded it. Um, yeah, I I thought that was cool. That um, <laughs> actually, I you know, I, I I I don't love this character, but I know that um, some people do, and uh, I think this is a good link back to previous Devils Do continuity. Yeah, it, when I saw it, it made me think that Joe Casey was paying attention to the recent issues. You know that re- that 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 run of Devil's Due continuity, uh, and and sort of tapping into that. The storytelling in issue four, Caselli's uh, actual drawing is good throughout the issue. His storytelling, his visually communicating what is in the script who is who is who and where they are in relation to other people and there's already a scene in issue um two that i that i didn't mention that i found a little confusing but in issue four on page 18 uh it's it's the page where firewall is shot that's that window is is shot through where is she being shot from and by whom because if you go to the previous page the previous page has her at that same computer, at that same window. And in neither case is the camera higher than her and looking past her so we can see down out the window. And yes, from general context, it's those Iron Grenadiers that are flying around. But I kind of need to see who's doing it because this is a big this is a big moment in the issue where Firewall either gets shot or gets shot at. And it's this dramatic thing where a bunch of glass breaks, right? And then similarly on that same page, right, uh, with Firewall getting shot, on the bottom two panels, uh, the 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 computer operator in Wingfield's Oregon home says, alert, multiple tractor beams broken, orbital targets maintaining position, overload imminent, overload imminent. And the panel of Wingfield, he looks like he's asleep. And he says, no, he's not reacting. And then in the next panel, it sort of looks like he has a heart attack or like he's shooting crystals and gems, like he's shooting <laughs> diamonds out of his body. And I think what Caselli is trying to do here is put the camera in the computer that's blowing out towards Wingfield and knocking Wingfield over and out of his chair. And that's not what I see at all. And if you want a comparison... Look at Marvel yearbook number three, where Mindbender has snake eyes and the brainwave uh, scanner and snake eyes overloads the computer and the giant monitor explodes in front of Mindbender. And we see Mindbender bracing himself. Uh, Ron Wagner draws this. Uh, it's, it's wordless. Wow. Man, Wagner had to do it without word balloons filling in any gaps. The screen says overload, overload. And uh, the screen is much bigger and it explodes and like broken glass gets thrown towards Mindbender. And I can't remember if we see him get knocked over or not. I can't remember if we see him afterwards lying on a on the ground with lots of broken glass. But um, so 
it's sort of like these two things. Uh, and then this third thing that I'm going to mention where this issue and the story stop working for me, where I feel like Casey needed more pages or a fifth issue for this story or Caselli is running out of time and is still drawing everything really well, but isn't sort of pulling the camera back, showing enough context, showing enough background, showing more than one character in a panel. I start to lose where people are. So this third thing that I want to point out that does not work for me in terms of storytelling is pages 13 and 14. Um, if you're holding the comic, these two pages face each other. The top left panel is the big uh, helicopter coming at us. And then the bottom panel is Flint in his parachute with an M16. And, okay, so Flint is in this helicopter that's going down. And he says, I'm way too popular with these. Uh, I'm way too popular with these flying gearboxes. Gotta bail. And then he does something uh, on on the controller or joystick of the, um, of the helicopter. And I can't tell quite what. Uh, and then there's an explosion, and this is this is good visual storytelling because Caselli places uh, it's it's basically an over the shoulder shot. So we see Roadblock seeing the explosion. Roadblock says, "Flint, good God, not him too!" And then there's a smoldering explosion in the air, and three Iron Grenadiers are sort of hovering around it. And uh, I pointed out in our previous episode that sometimes Caselli's panel compositions. I don't mean his panel to panel continuity. I mean how he arranges elements in a panel are not strong. And this is an example. And then Flint uh, is screaming with his machine gun uh, in a parachute. And he says, is that all you got? You think that's what it takes to take me out of the game? And then down uh, on the ground, uh, there's a, a hammer. And uh, maybe you can tell us, Mark, if this is a, a re-release of the hammer with some added 2005 gear. Um, and shipwreck is on the side the side gun port and he says did you see that i'm glad he's on our side and i thought no this is how the scene gets directed in an action movie where everyone knows what everyone else is doing and everyone can hear and see what everyone else is doing because everyone's read the script and in this actual scene like there's enough going on with all of these iron grenadiers flying around and shipwreck is busy shooting down his own grind and grind iron grenadiers on this hammer that's bouncing up and down as it's like driving over these little hills that a he did not see the explosion and flint get out just in in time and the parachute open he did not see flint take out some iron grenadiers with his machine gun Oh, wait, we don't see Flint take out Iron Grenadiers with his machine gun. We see Iron Grenadiers. We see Flint in a machine gun. But then there isn't a third panel where the fire, the shots firing from Flint's machine gun hit those Iron Grenadiers, right? We just, we go to this like action movie star, angry, righteous vengeance, Flint <laughs> yelling panel, which is very cool and sexy. It makes for a very exciting page. And then it sort of looks like the shots that are coming down at the hammer on the next page with shipwreck's line of dialogue is, is that coming from Flint's machine gun? Definitely not. But also like, aren't these iron grenadiers really hard to take out and Flint can do it while falling in a parachute with a machine gun. And I feel like shipwreck's reaction here is sort of like, 
damn, that guy's tough. And then the audience agrees with him. But like Flint isn't any better. He doesn't have like a magic, you know, howitzer. He's just got a machine gun. That's I just this 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 bit where shipwreck sort of knows what just happens and sees it and is like, oh man, audience, isn't Flint awesome? Flint is so awesome. It's like Joe Casey is like trying too hard in this moment, in this, this is, a, this is a strong word, like lazy action movie way. And uh, I got pulled out of this scene here. And I know it's like, it's, it's risky to say like, well, this isn't realistic because a lot of G.I. Joe isn't realistic, but this isn't grounded. This isn't how sort of, you know, a melee or a combat or a firefight uh, would work. And it's like, oh, all of a sudden for a panel, Flint is a superhero. And Shipwreck definitely sees it. And I thought, no, 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 no. Right, indeed. Um, and just following up on your previous point, the Hammer was released, re-released in 2002 as The Brawler. Uh, not the same as the previous Brawler. It's a, an updated version of the Hammer with this massive rocket launcher uh, equipped on top, which which really fires. Was the Brawler the aqua vehicle from 93 or 94? The Brawler was this weird-looking tank from 1991. Oh, right. Okay. Strange um, how, does, how, does the, how does the big finale, how does the big fight with the Iron Grenadiers aiming at Joe headquarters with the, with the radar dishes, how does it work for you? Yeah, it sort of fizzles out a bit, doesn't it? It's, they do something computery. All dishes, push it, and then and then that means that that um, Wingfield's computer overloads and explodes and kills him, and then and then Destro realizes that they've failed and self destructs all of his robots. So it's it's all a bit it's all a bit too much and a bit too computery for it to be particularly satisfying for me. And yeah, Destro's Destro's idea that if he presses a self destruct bu- button and gets rid of all trace of the Iron Grenadiers. <laughs> they say they all went up at once, only scraps left. Remote detonation, no doubt. Disintegration to cover their tracks. And the bottom of that panel with um, Flint and Storm Shadow is a bunch of parts, <laughs> 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 which could be easily gathered up and um, examined. Um, but, you know, they've they've seen it with their own eyes, these massive um, Iron Grenadier robots um, which I've been sure been captured on multiple cameras and things as as well. So to just press the disintegration button and that's covered all traces. They'll never blink it back to me. You know, mate, Destro, you literally design these in your signature look. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> obvious where these have come from. You are fooling nobody. Um, yeah, that comment you made, uh, it's all a bit, did you say rushed and computery? Yeah. It it reminds me of uh, the end of Devil's Due issue four reinstated with the nanites, and it reminds me of GI Joe: The Rise of Cobra, the live action movie with the nanites. And you know there have been GI Joe stories, you know, in in animation in comics where they're dealing with satellite dishes. You know, like there's an energy surge in er, the sixth episode of the G.I. Joe cartoon. I think it's the sixth episode. So the first part of uh, the Weather Dominator, uh, maybe it's the second episode, where the Joes 
fire an energy beam right back at the weather dominator and it causes it to break into parts and certainly the pyramid of darkness the, the third set of five episodes of gi joe deal with you know shooting beams of energy not quite to a satellite dish but to a thing kind of like a satellite dish all around the world i'm trying to think of i don't i don't have a larry hama comparison um, but i'm reminded a little bit of the story when throwdown and i don't remember help me out what issue number or span this is uh mark the story in the idw hama real american hero run where throwdown is in the is this during the death of snake eyes he he goes up into the atmosphere in some kind of ship or robot yeah 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 and and this will be like yeah roundabout is it two two one two two some ish 212 or 213 and this is how throwdown uh gets scarred and i think loses his voice so he's sort of becoming the new snake eyes when snake eyes dies yeah um and so you have this this is not a comparison here but you have you know sort of dealing with something going across a distance again it's not it's not a fair comparison but i feel like casey doesn't have sort of a dramatic enough visual and explanation and sort of triumphing of stopping the the challenge that considering how big the stakes are in issue zero a space station excuse me a satellite crashes into american city then it happens again at the end of issue one but we don't really talk about that and then at the end of issue four uh it's not cobra bats but it's basically cobra bats Destro just throws some Cobra bats at Joe base. And that feels out of proportion with, uh, with issue zero and one, both as a visual, as stakes, uh, and, and as a narrative. And, and then, you know, combined with the, you know, it's like, I don't like the color as much in these second two issues. And there are some storytelling bits that I find less clear or a little distracting, and um, I sort of feel like these, you know, issues three and four, issues one and two are the first half of a different story. Like somewhere out there, you know, in like the Joe Casey multiverse, there's a different conclusion to, uh, was it America's Newest War? Yep. Uh, and, and similarly, somewhere out there in the Joe Casey multiverse, there is a different issue one and two. That is the first half or zero and one and two. That's the first half of how we see three and four wrapped up, which has to do with like criminals in, is it Chicago and the sewer and uh, iron grenadiers. And then similarly, one more, one more sort of thing, you know, as the Joes are having these individual moments in issue four, taking out these iron grenadiers, Flint gets some cool, angry moments and stalker gets to say something. Cause he's in the, um, he's in that weird dune buggy vehicle. Is that a new version of the Ostriker? And then Storm Shadow shows up and there are a couple panels of Storm Shadow. There's two or three panels of Storm Shadow using his swords and he's sort of doing it in an unspecific way, how he's like chopping up the Iron Grenadiers. And I can't help feel that if this was a different Chia Joe writer, there'd be more specificity to sort of what he's doing and how he's doing it as opposed to just like a panel of him slashing and some like robot parts around him. Uh, that that sort of 
four striker type buggy thing is called the sand razor by the way again a relatively modern vehicle at the time from 2002 you know i forgot to say early on i forgot to say early on that uh in the letters page of issue one uh it says we've been planning this we've been planning this relaunch for six months huh interesting um which is is a line that probably belongs in our issue zero America's Elite episode where we're where we're doing the timeline of why Devils Do had to start GI Joe over and then the, the artistic choice to get a new writer, a different artist, maybe someone who didn't have a connection to GI Joe. The fact that issue two came out two weeks later, and that you know we've always felt that the end of Jurawa's run is rushed, and so it's interesting. I don't I don't think that necessarily means that Joe Casey had been writing issue zero six months earlier or Caselli had been drawing it six months earlier. I think Devil's Do's thinking of it and, you know, starts to talk to Hasbro about it. Um, yeah. And, and I think that timeline sort of is aligned to what we we sort of knew before that there was that sort of that interview with Josh Braylock sort of, you know, announcing the new series. And that was some way in advance of mm. um, Brandon Joa concluding his his run. So um you know i th- i think at the at the time we sort of talked about that that's kind of as the background to to kind of the the last furlong of uh of um the brandon jerwa run that, that all of this was happening in the in the background that we knew it was coming to a, a conclusion and that, you know, that would be influencing the way that things were being tied up uh, in in the um in the first issue 1 letters page as well there was a something that I, I noticed which was that um in reply to one of the letters they said for for you new readers we hope that you found this title to be compelling and accessible so it's sort of really drumming home that you know this is this is kind of a relaunch and they're really hoping to get new and lapsed readers back on board all right so issue four mark since we're wrapping up the story and the the comments on the issues themselves uh, we end with uh, Destro uh, doing the self-destruct thing and saying, I have felt so dead inside, and yet I still find life within. The blood boils in the heat of battle. The heart beats strong. Was that not our most potent drug, dearest Anastasia? He's just talking to himself. He doesn't know that she's alive. <laughs> and then his son shows up. And and then there's this last page uh, at the end of issue four where Muskrat, I mean Duke, um it's okay that's 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 a cheap shot um with some very prominent insects just <laughs> very very prominent i think it's sort of like the rotor blades from issue zero i think i needed caselli to draw these a little less in focus anyway uh we get to see uh duke using one of the many languages that he knows right conrad hauser if you've read his uh his file card so he's going somewhere and doing something in the third panel, I thought this bit of dialogue, I know I've been a little mysterious so far. Um, the mission, our final destination. I thought that was a little on the nose. I don't think that's quite the way you'd say it, but okay. But I wanted to ask you, Mark, how you feel about where we're leaving Destro and or the Baroness and how you feel about uh, this this Duke subplot and where issue four wraps up. So, so, so it's nice that sort of, Destro, uh, the Baroness is sort of playing on Destro's mind because he's still kind of unaware 
of what's what's happening. So that's fine if a little over dramatic, and and I I do like it when a, the sort of the story is seeded. Um, so that there isn't an abrupt end, you know, com- complete, this is your, you know, first four issues collected for trade. You know, I, I do, I do like it that, that this is a monthly book and we're going to, we're going to have a connective tissue between you know, this issue and issue five. And so, so having a clear sort of continuation story with that Duke subplot okay. where he's on this boat, seemingly in the Amazon or, or somewhere, that's, that's fine. It's um yeah, but as you say, maybe if they they didn't have it, they could have had a little bit more st- space to to tie up things slightly more neatly. You know, here's what I want uh, for these final two pages. I want the final page to say epilogue at the top of it, and I want um I need I need a release uh, on the previous page. They're still finishing the battle. Uh, a weird floating Iron Grenadier head, I don't know where its body is, uh, explodes just like 20 feet over a roadblock. And then we see this like copy and paste of satellite dishes with little explosions all over it. You're allowed to copy and paste if you're repeating stuff. That's it's not It's not a cheat. And then that line of dialogue you already did with Flint and... Storm Shadow, and then Stalker says something with this really nice bit of acting where he's taken his his beret off, and and then this panel, the final panel of not of the main story, right, separate from the Duke subplot. This is how packed it is. Colton is sort of commanding or ordering at all the Joes, and he says, "We've got a lock on a secure location. Pack it up and get ready to move again." And behind him is, I think, Oregon on a map of the continental US and it's highlighted because they're going to go get Wingfield. And I don't know if right. we're ever going to, I don't know that we're going to see that in issue five. I think that's sort of all unseen like mop up or cleanup. Um, I don't remember issue five. So maybe they go t- and get Wingfield and they find him with all these diamonds um, around him. And, <laughs> and then Colton says, he continues and somebody try and get in touch with Duke, Scarlet and Snake Eyes. Where the hell they've been this whole time? And, I think what I, even though Casey is splitting up the team, because Snake is on, Snake Eyes is on a solo mission, Scarlet's on a solo mission, Duke's on a solo mission, and I feel like Snake Eyes and Scarlet's solo missions are kind of allowed and Duke's isn't. But I think what I needed here is something in this scene where even though they need to immediately pack it up and get ready to move again, I think I need... Shipwreck, Storm, Shadow, Flint, Roadblock, Stalker. I think I need them to all come together for like one panel, one half page panel where they they don't actually like raise their fists and do yo-jo like it's the poster for 1984. Or they like all come back into the main building where Firewall was shot at and Colton is and all those green shirts, those tech green shirts are at the computer I, I sort of need them to all like exhale together because this story or this issue has been uh, sort of a sprint and it's really exciting. And this is where I feel like, oh, this needed one more page or a couple more pages or one more issue. And even if realistically, they actually have no time to waste. You know, it's like 
It's like, okay, the C-130 is landing in five minutes. Like all of you like grab your, reload your weapons and like, you know, head over yeah. to the Western. Um, yeah. We're all going like, to Oregon. Yeah. yeah. Like head over to the Western uh, orange traffic cone or like the, the Western fence of the base. That's where the plane's going to land and immediately take back off. I need them to sort of art wise. I need them to all be together and like someone pat someone on the back or I need a little bit of a visual sense of closure on this attack, which sort of ends the threat of the previous five issues. A good point. Um, And Colton's dialogue sort of highlights something for me, which is one of my frustrations as well, which is that Scarlet Duke and Snake Eyes have been on these solo missions and sort of been out of off the radar from from all of the rest of them. In particular, Scarlet, where it was issue one, she was in this conflict and and you know seemingly has disappeared or something, and they've not noticed. It just um, what I like about GI Joe is is sort of you know that they're meant to be the best of the best and they're meant to be elite, and for for them to split off in solo just seems out of character anyway you 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 know you normally would have unless you're someone's sort of you know ultra capable like snake eyes maybe or storm shadow who's maybe a bit more of a loner you'd expect there to be more of teams of people you know at least twos rather than just uh on completely solo and without any sort of backup or support and for scarlet to go go on go off on her own get and then get captured just seems like with without anyone being aware or noticing just seems like amateur hour and you know they're a smaller team less of them but not to have any sort of backup not to be, you know have anyone monitoring or comms or someone in a in a van outside with you know binoculars or a night scope checking out what's going on it it you know it it feels like uh yeah like i say amateur hour it it feels like um it feels like an x-men story where, you know, the X-Men are dealing with a problem at the mansion and, you know, Wolverine is off on his own in Florida. And uh, there are there aren't a lot of solo G.I. Joe stories. Like you say, there's it's sort of always, you know, six or four people jumping out of a plane or in the woods on a hill overlooking something, you know. Yeah, it'd be like, you know, it's a fire team, you know, got someone kicking the front door, another person around the back, and you've got someone at the front, and you've got another person covering your six. And Wild Bill stuff. is up in yeah. a plane, you know, up right now, or like coming in an hour. Eyes in the sky, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I I wonder, maybe I'm not being harsh enough, maybe I'm, I'm being uh, really open-minded for how this series goes, but I wonder if if these points are evidence that you know joe casey's not the right person to write gi joe that as excited as i was about wildcats and his uncanny x-men run before this uh and sort of happy to have anyone who was a good writer take on gi joe after some of the previous comics that um you know maybe maybe it sort of only half works and you know, it's funny because one of the, one of my refrains on this show is this is a difficult book to draw, and this is a difficult book to write. Yeah, it's true. And you know, just as just as not everyone should draw a team book, some people really should draw solo books. 
you know, maybe not everyone should write a team book. And, you know, Casey wrote good team books, so it's not like he's out of the running. Um, but uh, G.I. Joe is such a particular kind of team book. Okay, next up, uh, if we're going on the main main sort of discussion, I've got an, uh, one little I spy, which is that the Arequibo Observatory in Puerto Rico is a real-life place, and it is an anagram of Cobra, i.e., got cobra and then there's a i and an e left over at the end um, i wonder mm. if that was intentional like arbco quote of the week 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 i don't have a favorite line of dialogue but i've got a least favorite line of dia- dialogue mm. tim doesn't like it someone is talking dialogue's clunky the words are bad which was Flint. Um, There'll never be enough of you to satisfy my hate. A little, <laughs> little bit on the nose. Are you telling yeah. me Flint's troubled? Yeah. Um, he. I think I'd be okay if he said that quietly <laughs> to a therapist, but isn't he also yelling it in a fight? Yeah. And... That feels o- overdone that, you know, he's he's going to start to get sloppy. And, you know, that line is sort of a little bit too much for the benefit of the uh, benefit of the audience. Uh, I don't have a favorite line or a fe- least favorite line. So what's next? Uh, Yo, Joe, I think. Yo, Joe, cola, nut, grape, soda. It's Yo. Joe Time. Like I go first. Yeah. So uh, for me, the positives are: it's a big story. It, it zips along. A lot, a lot happens. It's you know, it's very compelling. Um, the art is great. I think uh, Caselli does a, 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 an amazing job. Slightly um, variable coloring, perhaps, but but still relatively strong uh, across the. The patch and not too jarring, at least to to me, the the change of colorist and um, yeah, I think uh, in terms of in terms of art, it's very very strong indeed. There, I think there's quite a lot of missteps in terms of storytelling. The um, you know, there's that growing sense that maybe Casey doesn't quite get the characters as as well as um, other writers have. I I didn't like the way that Scarlet disappeared in issue one. I wasn't sure about the Snake Eyes solo dead end in the in the midst of all the rest of the story. I thought the ending with the computer things happening was a little bit underwhelming against such a, a sort of bold opener. The Storm Shadow distrust from the lake likes of Shipwreck just got a little bit tiresome. I thought Flint's um, troubled, um, <laughs> troubled outlook was a little bit too on the nose. And and his grumbles about the team wasting their time on detective work and just going out and getting the bad guys just seemed a bit weird. You do have to do the the legwork to figure out what has happened, who has done it, where you have to go. Uh, there's no such thing as just a, a nebulous bad guy that you can punch on the nose every time. The Baroness being alive was a nice sort of reveal. But but the interrogation 
seemed a little bit odd um and, and, and then sort of storm shadow being a little bit more of a and across storm shadow and across the team all being uh, somewhat of uh you know intel hackers etc to to you know find all of those links again um it's convenient for storytelling purposes but possibly not uh not obvious for the characters and their own strengths so i i sort of talked a little a lot about the things that i didn't like but overall i still enjoyed it i thought the art was strong i thought the story was overall interesting despite all of those those sort of grumbles so i'd still probably give it something like a seven um i'm i'm going back and forth between a five and a six a five feels punitive uh considering how much uh, considering how much it falters, a, a six feels generous. And considering what a step down it is from the excitement of issue zero and the color and the art, I think a five. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I mean, I like this opening arc more than I do the first Devil's Due arc, uh, reinstated issues one through four from 2001. But, you know, this doesn't, uh, this doesn't, America's newest war doesn't quite add up. And I, it's, it's a, it's a five and I'm happy to keep reading and see where it goes. Although I, I know that Caselli leaves and then Casey leaves <laughs> and then it becomes sort of a different book. So, uh, five. Hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely very curious to see where this goes and, uh, if, What's what's threads uh, Casey sort of pulls on over the course of the next uh, next few few issues, and and whether my some of my misgivings slightly turned around. We'll, we shall see. So I think we are done with uh, America's Elite one to four. Um, next time on Talking Doubt, Joe disavowed. We will continue our look at this America's Elite era uh, with. Maybe four issues uh, or so from the next few. We'll I'll, I'll read ahead and try and figure out where the best cutoff point is. And then, of course, we'll be uh, covering all sorts of other goodness uh, as we go along on the, on other shows. Um, so, Tim, um, where can people find you when you're not talking to me about G.I. Joe? Video essays on film and TV at our YouTube channel, Atomic Abe Productions. My brick and mortar comic book store in Somerville, Massachusetts is Hub Comics. And I write about G.I. Joe at a realamericanbook.com. Very good. You can find us on the usual places. Talkingjoe.co.uk is the website with links to all of those places. You can join the Facebook group. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. You can contact us and leave us a voicemail. And you can like and subscribe everything over at YouTube. We are also on Patreon, patreon.com slash Talking Joe. Uh, so a big thanks to all of our backers, Richard, Sam, Jay, Bill, Christopher, Justin, Rob, Brian and Shane. for getting early access to episodes as well as some exclusive content. And that's us done. But remember that... Nobody beats Talking Joe, an international podcast!
Laters.